So, I mean, if you, if you want, we can just do that one more time, and then we can just dismiss early and go enjoy the sunshine. But uh, I know that you guys will go back and tell Pastor Banks that I let you out early, and I'll get in trouble. So we're going to have to sit through the whole thing this morning. No, I appreciate this opportunity to, to bring the word to you guys this morning. Uh, you all probably know that uh, when you invest some time into a portion of Scripture— the person who really invests their time into it, they're the ones who reap the most from that passage. So uh, I have to say that this particular passage we're going to be in, in Second Peter uh, chapter 1, this has been a passage that uh, I have come back to uh, pretty frequently uh, over the, the past year, particularly in 2018. This was kind of like my passage of the year and uh, has continued to bless me since then. And uh, I had actually originally prepared this message uh, for earlier in the year, but uh, we had some snow that <laughs> interfered with that plan. Uh, and so uh, I really enjoyed now getting to review it in preparation for this morning and be blessed once again, as I trust you will be blessed as well. Um, we're going to be talking about this concept of unity. We're all familiar with the term unity, uh, in fact, I would say that we all desire a sense of unity in our life, in relationships, in community. Uh, the world longs for that. Uh, they seek to bring unity, uh, sometimes through their own means, their own effort, not necessarily through Christ's intervention. Um, but as much as we might be desire, uh, as much as we might desire this experience of unity, in, in my profession, I have found that there's very few people who ever really attain long-lasting, deep, intimate, personal sense of unity in their life and relationships. All right, so we're going to explore my, my main goal this morning. In fact, uh, if you look at Second Peter 1, uh, you won't really find unity anywhere in that passage. It's not like the most reoccurring word. Uh, my goal with this passage in Second Peter 1 is that I believe this is laying out the foundational building blocks for the individual. So when we think of unity, we think of a group, right? Well, in order to have a unified group, there needs to be some sense of cohesive foundation that is true of each of those individuals for there to be a sense of unity, all right? So, of course, we don't think that unity is uniformity, okay? It doesn't mean that we all look the same or we all do exactly the same thing, but there needs to be some sort of core principle foundation that brings us all together. And I think we're going to see that that is ultimately found in Christ. But this is going to spell out what does that look like for me as an individual wanting to contribute to the unity of the body of Christ. Uh, so I, I know this has been very challenging to me, and I, I hope that through God's Word and His Spirit, it will be a challenge to you as well. Uh, give us a, a little bit of context before we jump into Second Peter. Uh, let's jump back to First Peter uh, and and. This book, 1 Peter, in, in chapter 1, it addresses the audience in who he is writing to also in uh, 2 Peter. So if you look at 1 Peter 1, you'll see that he's talking to the elect exiles. Then he goes through and names a, a number of different uh, cities in the Asia area, all right? So this is most likely Gentiles, all right? This is not most likely a predominant Jewish population, but we do believe that they are believers. It's to the churches. It talks about the elect. So these are individuals who are identifying 
with the new church, who are identifying as believers within these countries or within these churches in that in that region, and his purpose for writing the first book of Peter is uh, is to give them hope in their suffering. All right, this is at a point in time where the Roman Empire is inflicting a lot of persecution on the church. So these believers are being persecuted by the Roman Empire. So Peter is writing to them to encourage them in First Peter uh, in the persecution to keep hope, steady their faith, uh, persevere through this, and, and to continue on. So that's the, the, the first book of Peter, his first letter. The second letter, something that's kind of interesting about this, is, is where Peter is writing from now in his second Peter. One thing that I'm encouraged as you see Peter mature in his faith in Christ, is that Peter all of a sudden becomes someone who walks the talk. You know, if, if you know, if you remember Peter in the Gospels, and even sometimes in the beginning part of Acts, Peter talked a lot. You know, he was known to say things and probably get ahead of himself and what he was committing to, but he didn't always have the ability to follow through. Well, that's not the Peter that we find in the book of Second Peter. Second Peter, or Peter, encouraged the people to keep hope and persecution in his first letter, and now he's writing to them a second time in jail, in Rome most likely, under persecution. So he himself is under persecution, keeping his hope in Christ under that persecution. In fact, you could think of Second Peter as the last letter we have recorded uh, from him, and uh, you could kind of look at this letter as his farewell address. In fact, if, if you take a moment to think, uh, imagine you're the recipient. So you've, you've been ministered to this individual, Peter, okay? Uh, he's been instrumental in the development of the churches that he's writing to. So they know him personally, okay? And imagine what their emotions and their thoughts would be as they read in Second Peter 1, those uh, verse starting in verse 12, through 15, that paragraph. Now think about this. He said, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So now you're starting, wait, wait as long as you're in this body, where, where is he going with this? All right, where is he heading this? Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. All right? He's anticipating his imminent death. And, and he references there that Christ, Christ prophesied, Christ foretold that Peter would be executed for his faith. And, and Peter now, it's, it's imminent. It's, it's upon him. And so that is the state that Peter's writing in. And I, I'm sure as the believers received this letter, it brought them into a state of grief and mourning. And, and that's one reason I think this passage is so important is because he says, I'm, I will make, in verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time recall these things. So Peter is saying, this is my farewell address. I'm never going to get to depart God's word to you again. And if there's nothing else I have to share with you, these are the words I want you to remember me by. And I want you to commit to your memory as you go forth in this life. So there's a heavy weight upon us as we read through these passages and anticipate what Peter's trying to convey to us uh, in, in this second letter. Uh, before we dive in any further, I, I want to just take a moment to open up in a word of prayer uh, that our hearts will be ready for that. 
Dearly Father, it is uh, with heavy hearts we think of the idea of losing someone we care about. It is with a heavy heart we think about how much they have invested into us and how much we've appreciated someone, a mentor, a di- discipler, a pastor, a spiritual leader who poured into us and to see them coming to their last days and to mourn the good times together, but to also rejoice, to celebrate with tears about their future with you. And so, Lord, I ask that these words will penetrate our hearts this morning, that they will challenge us to grow and conform our lives to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, when I was reading through this passage, uh, someone personal came to my mind, and that's my grandfather. Uh, My grandfather was not brought up in a Christian home. He got saved later on in life. But when he did get saved, he committed his life to pursuing Christ. And he, he pursued ministry and served faithfully in a church his entire life and, and eventually retired from that. And I remember being at his funeral. And I, I was challenged. And this is one reason why this passage is so important to me. I was challenged by a man that I knew who ran the race well, who finished well, who was effective, and who still has fruit. In fact, my parents uh, have a piece of property out where my grandfather lived, and they're looking to build a house on that piece of property when they retire. And they were calling up a couple contractors, and one of the contractors said, your name's Yeckley? Are you related to Pastor Glenn Yeckley? And my dad said, yeah, that was my, my father. He's like, that man had a huge impact in my life my family. He says, you tell me what you need, and I'm doing it for you at cost. He's like, I'm not charging you. I can't ever repay what your grandfather did for us. And so that's a burden I want all of us to have, is that we will finish well like that. You know, that we will have a testimony like that, and that that will be one of our main ambitions. So I've made this passage one of my life uh, passages because of one of the promises it has, and we'll get to it, that we can live a life fruitful and effective for Christ. We can be guaranteed that. So let's dive into this. But it's not going to come without cost. Peter was aware of that, and so were uh, the individuals he was writing to. There are certain qualifications, all right, or we can say prerequisites for unity. Now you look at that picture. If, if anyone has children or have grown up with little children, they like to play doctor on you, Okay. But I would never trust my children with a real scalpel or a real instruments over me, okay? They can only use the plastic ones because they're not qualified to do that type of work on me. I'm not going to trust them that way, all right? Not everyone is qualified to lead us in unity for Christ's cause, okay? I want you to think about that. Not everyone is qualified. And Scripture lays out specific qualifications necessary for us as individuals and for those in leadership who are going to lead us in unity under Christ. And so I want to look at some of those that I see here in 2 Peter 1. And it starts off in the first two verses. We're going to see most, or first three verses, we're going to see these qualifications uh, laid out for us. I'm going to read uh, first one and then we'll look at those. So Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. All right? Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. 
What does Peter do right from the beginning? He adopts a position of humility. To be a servant is to humble yourself in the presence of your master. You're not looking to bring the attention on yourself. You're looking to move the attention onto the individual you serve, okay? So Peter, from the very get-go, wants to elevate Christ, not himself, all right? He doesn't go in to talk about all the things he did for the churches in Asia. No, he goes on to talk about how he served. Everything he has done is for the sake of Christ. In fact, in the Greek literature, humility, even in the secular culture of Greece, humility is considered to be the foundational virtue. And I think that they're onto something there. How can I pursue godly virtues if I don't first humble myself and recognize that those godly virtues are not my own, but they're his, all right? I can't move forward in godliness, in maturity, without first humbling myself. Isn't that what Christ did too? He demonstrated and modeled to us. As he came to minister to us here on earth, he humbled himself and came down. He left his heaven, came down to our earth. So humility is a critical pre-qualification that we see elevated in this passage. He goes on to say uh, that he's a servant of the apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Faith is a foundational block in this process. Without faith, we cannot please God. Hebrews 11 tells us about that. Uh, and, and what's interesting here is that the word used for obtained, to those who have obtained a faith, this, this word does not actually convey the aspect of like, I accomplished this. I've obtained. I reached out and I seized it. I can do this. In fact, we can kind of deduct that from the text right here because it says, equal with uh, equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God. So it's not by our own righteousness, but it's actually by the righteousness of our God. What he means is that we have received, okay? We've received faith that's been accomplished, not of our own works, but by the righteousness of God. And he is the one who is at work within us. And so this goes back to, I, I was able to preach back in December about saving faith, Okay? So that's what we're talking about. This isn't just faith I put in a chair or an inanimate object. We can have natural faith that our car will get us from point A to point B. That's not saving faith. That doesn't save us. There's a different faith that saves us. This is saving faith that we see highlighted here because it's associated to the righteousness of God. All right? And that's another point to keep us humble in that process. He goes on to say that may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, in the knowledge of God. In fact, that phrase, if I was to pick any phrase that is repeated probably the most frequently through the second letter, particularly in the passage we're looking at, you're going to see in the knowledge of God come up multiple times. It's not only here within the second verse of the chapter, but if you jumped to the last chapter of Second Peter in chapter 3, verse 18, you'll see that same phrase there. So he starts off and he ends. And, and that makes sense. How can we have unity if we're not humbly receiving the faith of God, the saving faith of God, through the knowledge of God, right? Because how does saving faith come? Saving faith comes from the hearing of the Word of God, all right? And this isn't just a knowledge in the sense of head knowledge. We've all understood this. Frequently, these languages, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, refer to knowing in a much more intimate relational component, all right? This is a knowledge of God that leads to salvation, 
to knowing him intimately and personally. All right, so we should pursue in the knowledge of God. And you can also think of it from an, a progressive standpoint, where we're growing in that knowledge of him. Kind of like if, if you're married or if you have children or if you've had a long-life friend, your knowledge of them grows as your relationship grows with them. Because they're different each day. You're getting to know new components about them. So you're growing in your knowledge. You're pursuing the knowledge. And it's a very relational, intimate component. All right? And the last point there, in, in, which I see in verse 3, is the experiencing the power of God. So you see this, this component. And I think all four of these are critical. I'm not saying this is exhaustive. But in this passage, I see these four elements as critical prequalifications. If we want to see unity come out in our life, in our relationship, in our church, these are pre-qualifications to this process. In verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is one of those verses where I'm just like, I'm floored by it. His divine power has granted to us all things. Think about that. That's an absolute statement. He's not leaving anything out of there. However, when we think of that component, I don't want us to think of it as if it's a genie, all right? He's not saying that you come to God and and you seek to access his divine power by rubbing the genie and saying, all right, God, this is what I want you to do. You said your power can do all things for me, you know, and this is what I want you to accomplish with your power for me today, all right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying that my power will accomplish all things for you that pertain to life and godliness. It's, it's focused. It's specific. He says, I'm most, I'm most concerned about seeing you grow in your life and in your godliness, and that's where I'm going to invest my power into pursuing you. That might mean that you're going to go through suffering, and he's going to choose not to remove that suffering, that you're going to have seasons of trials in your life. But what he's promising you is that I'm going to give you the power every time in every season that you will find life and maintain godliness in that season if you turn to me and choose to lean on Christ. All right? Once again, the focus is not on Peter. The focus is not on the believer. The focus is on Christ. He's the source of that power. And that verse goes on. And, and one thing I, I, I think about as I was, you know, uh, this, this aspect of power and the power to bring unity, okay, into a community. I was, uh, I was thinking about... Uh, you know, our, our, our obsession with superheroes, all right? Malachi, all, he's got action figures. He's talking about the superheroes. He wants to know their unique powers and what they can do. Our world is obsessed with individuals having supernatural power to accomplish what we recognize we can't do, right? We can't bring world peace. Do you notice that? We keep trying, but we're not accomplishing it. So we create characters like the Avengers who can go out there and we can fantasize their ability to bring world peace for us. They have supernatural powers, right? They can accomplish this. Or Superman, you know, is there and we want him to accomplish unity, peace in our world. But all the while, we fantasize about these fictional characters when we have someone who's real, who actually has the power, who actually has the ability to bring peace within us and to bring peace within the world and to unify us all under himself, all right? So we have someone and he has chosen to make himself available and accessible to us for that purpose. 
And so as we live out these qualifications in our life, as we pursue these, if these things are true within our own life, then it produces a a type of fruit. It produces certain qualities for practicing unity. All right? So we have those qualifications. We're seeking those qualifications. And now they will produce fruit, certain qualities of practicing unity. One of the components I think is really interesting, and you probably notice he's picking a lot of pictures of children. You know, like, what is up with that? <laughs> no, children, though, they have a very interesting component of being somewhat sincere or less able to deceive their sincerity, okay? When Malachi is trying to pull one over on me, it's pretty obvious, okay? Like, I know that he's, he's, he's up to something, all right? But he also has a great way of genuinely expressing affection and care in such a tender, soft way. It melts, makes your heart melt. It makes it believe, like, could this possibly be the kid who just tried to tackle me and assault me, you know, a few minutes ago, and now he's so soft and tender? But they, they have those elements to them. And, and, and when they're showing compassion, it's much more likely to be genuine than sometimes adults, Right? Sometimes we're trying to show compassion and kindness or qualities, but we're just doing it because we want to keep a certain image, present a certain image, but it's not actually genuine within us. But children have that aspect. And and Scripture talks about childlike faith that we're going to look at in a minute, all right? And and now that's a prerequisite. That's a requirement towards the saving knowledge of Christ. So when we're thinking about some of these qualities, I I found it really interesting uh, that it starts off in verse 5, uh, identifying faith as the foundation or as the starting point, okay? So once again, we see faith brought into this component. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And so he's starting off with faith as the foundation. In fact, you know, we've read through this passage already with Drew, and it ends in verse 7 with love. And I think that's intentional. The other ones, I don't really know if there's a particular order or significance, like one leads to the next. We'll look at them individually. But I do think that he starts with faith and ends with love and that that's intentional order. All right, we frequently see that the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate demonstration of our faith is genuine Christ-like love. All right, we saw that. In fact, Pastor was preaching about that a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians, and he's going to really be getting into it as we approach chapter 13. Okay, but love is the ultimate demonstration, the ultimate quality affirming our faith. But some of these other elements are worth looking into and understanding what is intended through these terms that, that Peter is highlighting as a significant component to the walk and faith of the believer. And that first one there, after faith, is virtue. And I did a word study on this word that they use in virtue. And this virtue is, is most accurately tried to demonstrate within the English language as goodness. So when we're thinking about this, it's, it's not our good, or like, that was good. No, it's God's goodness. God's nature is good. All good things come from the Lord. He is good. He can't do anything that is not good. That is who he is. Other uh, ways it's translated, excellence. It actually used uh, the word excellent in verse 3. Uh, when we were talking about the power that he's given us for life and godliness, and it was through the knowledge, we see that phrase again, knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All right, that same concept of virtue. Perfection, sometimes it uses it complete. It's whole. It's unified. All right, it doesn't need anything. 
added to it. Okay, it's perfect. So that's the component of that virtue there we see. And it's, it's highlighted there in verse 3, here in verse 4, and again in, in 5. Uh, all three of those verses uh, we see highlighting this aspect of, of perfection and excellence, virtue. Second one, knowledge. We kind of hit on this a little bit. But uh, again, it's that progressive, intimate knowledge. I won't spend too much time there, but, but that it grows. It's not like I know of Christ and I need to not learn anything else. No, it's this progressive component of you need to continually learn and commit to learning. Um, I really thought the next two, self-control and steadfastness, it was interesting that he paired those two side by side. Uh, when, uh, when I was looking at these terms, self-control is kind of the aspect of uh, resisting the pleasures uh, all right, in life, to resisting the temptations, the things that try to lure us in. But you contrast that with steadfastness is the opposite. Steadfastness is to hold firm in pain. So one is resisting pleasures that are not of God, and, and the other one is to hold fast when you're in pain. So the two different components that you could contrast how you should react. And I think the danger here is when we give in to our pleasures, uh, when we allow flattery to take root, when we allow gossip or our desires that God is not honored by, when we entertain those things and we're not practicing self-control and uh, discernment, all right, we start to disrupt the unity within our, within our relationship with God within the relationships here of the body, okay? And when we hold fast in our trials and pain and suffering, that perseveres, the, preserves the unity when we're going through challenging times and seasons. You know, I, I do a, a lot of marriage counseling, and I like to listen to people, pastors or counselors, who've been married for 40 years, 50 years. And I like to ask them, like, what is it? You know, what's the secret equation? You know, how do you persevere in an active, growing marriage for 50 years when so many marriages are falling apart? And, and one constant theme I heard is, is you commit to it. You make a covenant and you hold fast to it. You're steadfast through the trials, through the waves, through the ups and downs. And you're willing to work this through, realizing that here on this earth, the, the, one of the positive components of, of, of this earth cycle is that nothing on earth lasts forever, all right? My trials, my difficult seasons will not last forever, all right? That's an encouragement, okay? Eternity, everything that is good will last forever, but our suffering, our trials will not last forever. So we hold steadfast for a season. It will pass. And godliness, I actually, when I first read through this passage, I thought of godliness, and I thought that referenced more of the component of what virtue was, but it's actually not. Godliness, better understood uh, in the biblical languages, uh, at least the word that's here and, and was translated, uh, is more the religious workings of your faith. So this is actually a, uh, a Greek word that they use for their own religions. So it's not, it's not unique to Christianity. He's not saying godliness as far as Christian godliness. What he's saying is the practice of religion. You know, I think of uh, passages that come to my mind is, is pray without ceasing. It's the practice of your faith. You're continually praying, you know. Uh, you're, you're, you're caring, you know. True religion is, is caring for the orphans, for the widows, you know. So what is the practice of your faith? Uh, not forsaking the gathering of assembly, being hospital, bearing burdens, the actual doing. I think of James 1, right? It's uh, demonstrate your faith by your works. But what's interesting here is that faith is always comes first. It's not works and then faith. 
It's faith and then works. But we're to demonstrate our faith. They should be observable, obvious. And one of the most important ways we can demonstrate our faith is through brotherly affections. All right? And I really appreciate this because I'm generally more of a passionate, emotional person. And here we have Peter elevating the affections. One of America's greatest theologians, Jonathan Edwards, uh, his most popular book is about religious affections. And he argues in a way that I can't even comprehend what he's trying to say, uh, but I can read the people who can translate what he's saying. Uh, He argues and basically dissects how important the affections are and how God desires our affections to be expressed in a way that demonstrates godliness. It's not just about obedience. It's about obeying with a good heart attitude. All right, I have my wife to thank for that concept. She has this phrase at home, and she says to the children, sometimes maybe to me, no, I mean to the children, (laughs) obey right away, all the way, and with a good heart attitude. That's the type of obedience God expects from us. That's the type of brotherly affections that we need the attitude component. We're invested into this emotionally that helps to create unity. You ever, you ever been in a group and you can tell people really don't want to be there, but they're there because they have to be there? All right? That doesn't promote unity. That promotes, you know, bitterness, uh, discontentment, okay? Do we desire for these things? then it will contribute. These are qualities. These are the fruit of someone who wants to build unity through Christ. These are the biblical mandates for unity and what it's to look like. So this is a good way. This list, and we'll look at one more thing before, one more point before we conclude. This list is a good way to discern. In counseling, you know, frequently have multiple parties involved, and they both tell the story from very different perspectives. It's like, are you guys sure you're talking about the same thing? Because you're, you're talking about it very differently than your partner. And so I need some guide to help me discern what is true, what is right. And what I have found to be the best judge of that is to go back to godly character, which are these qualities that we're looking for. So rather than focus necessarily on the details of what they're saying, I'm looking to see, are they demonstrating godly character? I'm going to put my confidence in that. Do you know that that's what God places his confidence in? It's not in how much we know, although we saw knowledge is critical. It's on how do we demonstrate his very nature. When you look at the qualifications for a pastor or leader in the church, most of them are focused on character qualifications. That is the fruit. Think of Galatians 5.22. Demonstrates the fruit of the Holy Spirit. These are qualifications. They're largely character, demonstrating character within that passage. So that's a critical element. So how do I assess the godly? Is this person demonstrating godly character? Not just saying the right things, but do they actually live out the godly character, which we know Peter does live it out as he challenges these people with these uh, these. Uh, with these passages of truth. Um, And I mentioned completing your faith through love and the importance of love. In fact, Romans 12 has a really interesting uh, phrase. We we explored Romans 12 in the Bible study a couple weeks ago. And Romans 12 highlights a phrase that says, let your love be genuine. Which means that there's a love out there, someone's out there trying to portray a love that isn't genuine. It might sound like love. It might even portray for a season love but it's not actually love. We can be deceived 
All right, that's the great work of, of the devil himself, is to try to deceive people that uh, something is better. The world does that too, right? They try to deceive you. Hey, this will promise unity. This will promise peace. This will promise satisfaction. They try to deceive us into believing there's something else more lovely than Christ himself. If anyone, in fact, I do this in conflict resolution, uh, when I listen to a situation and I realize that everyone's talking about me or them or this or that, no one's talking about Christ. It's like, how are we ever supposed to really resolve this situation if we're not even talking about the one person who can actually redeem and reconcile us together? If we're not talking about Christ, then we're not elevating his power, his ability to actually accomplish unity through our trials and conflict in life. So, Pursuing that aspect and, and striving, recognizing how love completes uh, this process and the ultimate demonstration of godliness. And uh, um, in fact, in verse, uh, verse 8 is, is one of those verses that, that really caught my eye when I was working through this passage. And it says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, Again, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the third time we've seen it already. But if they're increasing, so it gives you the idea that this is to be a growing process. All right? It's not stagnant. If they're increasing, they keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful. And and that is and should be our greatest fear. All right? My ultimate fear shouldn't ultimately be what my friends, what my parents, what other people think about me. All right? That's called the fear of man. My ultimate fear should be, am I making decisions that are going to lead me to a path of ineffective ministry for Christ, unfruitful ministry for Christ? That should be my ultimate fear. That should be the ultimate motivating factor to resist the devil, to resist temptations, and to pursue these qualities and to allow them to come forth through us in Christ. And so uh, these components are to be growing in us and to be demonstrated through the fruit of Christ's existence there within us. And, and um, one of the other components I, I thought about as I went through this is that he's talking about believers. You know, I ha- actually, when I got to this verse, I started to doubt, but, but listen to this as we go on into verse 9. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgot that he was cleansed from his former sins. Well, if they forgot about their salvation, if they forgot that they've been forgiven for their sins, if they forgot about their first love, that means that that they were saved and now they have grown apart from God because they are not seeking to allow these qualities to grow in them, to increase, to continue in them. So there is a, this is a bizarre concept that I was wrestling with. There is a saving faith, a saving knowledge of God that redeems our souls. But just because our soul has been redeemed does not mean we can go on cruise control. All right? That's the concept of progressive sanctification. We are to continually be growing and striving towards godliness, towards Christ. More and more in those pre-qualifications and the qualities, pray for them uh, that they would increase in us. We see the apostles demonstrating that. So growth in these seven qualities produces effectiveness, avoids ineffective, unfruitful ministry, and it maintains a position of humility. All right, I think that's critical. Continued. Uh, in fact, I think of it this way. Some of the professors I've sat under, 
they always talk about the more they learn, the more they realize they don't know. All right? Because they realize if they can pursue this specific field and get a PhD in this specific field, there are PhD programs in thousands and thousands and thousands of fields that have studied material at a depth that they're not even aware of. So the more we grow, the more we mature, the more humble we should be rather than arrogant, rather than prideful. Okay? So humility should be continually maintained through this growth process. We should not become arrogant or think more of ourselves uh, because of what Christ is doing. And then the quenching. You know how hard it was to come up with uh, alliterations that started with Q and were relevant to the past? So we had qualifications, we had qualities, and now we got quenching your desire for unity. Okay? So we talked about it. We desire this. The world desires this. But there's a danger that all people or all things that promise unity cannot produce it. Uh, in fact, in counseling, uh, our profession has frequently been known to over make promises, over-promise something, and under-deliver. Have any of you guys watched uh, any of those uh, uh, commercials for psychotropic medication that makes it feel like if you take this pill, your life is just going to be great, you know? That's over-promising. And then they really quickly read through all the side effects, right? <laughs> and so that's under-delivering, okay? It's like, if it sounds too good to be true, it might be too good to be true. Uh, but Christ, Christ does not under-deliver in that process. In fact, we think of him. I, I, I like this picture because I saw the living water, the woman at the well. You know, Jesus can provide water that will satisfy your quench. All right? He can actually fulfill the ability. He has the power to bring unity within ourselves and within the body. When I was thinking about uh, these components in these passages, there are two things I want to highlight as barriers or dangers as we wrap this up. In verse 10, it says, um, oh, verse 9, he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. So, and forgetting his former sins, forgetting where he came from. So the two components I have here that I see in the passage are barriers, forgetting where you, you've come from, forgetting what Christ has accomplished for you, that you, that you needed God's grace and his righteousness to be saved. And then back in verse 4 it says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So the promises are talking future. All right, so the two areas, the two barriers I see here is we forget where we came from, we forget what Christ has accomplished for us, past tense, and we forget what he's promised us, what he's going to do for us in the future. When we forget those two things, when we become nearsighted and forget where we come from and forget where we're going, we make ourselves vulnerable to being ineffective. So those are the barriers to keep yourself aware of, and the barriers prevent us from being partakers of the divine nature. But if we remember those things, and if we engage Christ, we get to partake in his divine nature is what we're invited into, into in, in, in this passage. And we've talked about that. That's what we see in those qualities. That's what we see demonstrated. But one thing I want to highlight here, when I was thinking about his nature and the concept of unity, do you know that there's an element, and we're all familiar with this, nothing new here, uh, about his very nature that gives the best representation of unity. And it's found in the Trinity. We serve a triune God. We serve a unified God. And we are made in his image. In fact, Ephesians 4 calls us under one Christ, under one God. We are to be one church, one body, 
emphasizes 111 through Ephesians 4. We are to be unified because God himself is unified, and we are to reflect and demonstrate him. So we can't say, ultimately, that we are serving God, that we are excited about God, that we're pursuing God, and live in a way that does not promote godly unity. Okay? We can't do that because God himself is unified. And if we were following after him, we would then be walking likewise in his manner. And, and that produces an aspect of increasing. I won't talk too much about this, but multiplying grace and peace, which is actually a theme you see throughout uh, this book, and we saw it there at the beginning. Grace, think about that. Try to create unity without grace and peace. We have to be gracious with each other, and we have to try to promote peacefulness. We have to be peaceful. That, those are two necessary components to unity. And so as we wrap up, I want to uh, challenge us with this, this picture image. And, and the picture here is that you see a unified family holding hands, right? They're all connected. But ultimately, they're able to be connected because they're in the hands of God. You will not be able to create unity in your own effort, in your own means. Unity is created when you lean on God, when you place yourself in his hands, and he begins to work out that process. Okay? I think unity is probably one of the hardest things to ever accomplish. <laughs> peace within ourselves, peace within one other relationship, much less the family dynamics, a church, a community, a country, you know. These are very difficult. But one day, Christ is coming back, and he's going to build his kingdom, and it will be a unified kingdom, because he has the power to do that. So let's walk now. Ephesians 4 challenges us, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Let's walk now as if we are members of that kingdom to promote unity within one another, to challenge one another, to build each other up in Christ and in the faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.